Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. You can subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave comments for us. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hello, Chris. How are you going? I'm very well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? I'm happy. Got some big news for you today. What's that? You'll, you'll have to treat me with more respect from now on. Oh, that's hardly possible. <laughs> well, you will, because now I'm, I'm your equal on an academic footing, because um, just yesterday, my PhD came through at last. Fantastic, Gihan. It's taken all this time. That's right. So it's a PhD from the Faculty of Arts at Thunderwood College, and it's a degree um, in astronomy, so a Doctor of Science in Astronomy. Excellent. That's where I got my PhD, Gihan. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So <laughs> Thunderwood College is brilliant, Chris. It's so much better than yours, because unlike yours, where you had to go through years of research and publish a thesis and add to the, create a unique body of knowledge and add to the sum total of human existence and knowledge. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I just went to thunderwoodcollege.com and um, typed in a few details and within 10 seconds I had an official certificate from the Regents of Thunderwood College granting me a PhD. Awesome. Well, thank yeah, you, Dan. And yeah, that's uh, universally recognised, is it, that qualification? Well, it is by them. <laughs> and uh, you have to call me Dr. Gihan from now on, please. I will. The, the remainder of this podcast. So this actually is what we're going to talk about today. It's the, the whole idea of authority and how you can assess authority on the Internet. And I came across this Thunderwood College from a podcast. I was listening to an excellent podcast called Skeptoids.com, and I put you onto that recently, Chris. It is a great podcast, yep. Yeah, and uh, I acknowledge Brian Dunning, Dr. Brian Dunning, who publishes that for talking about lots of, it talks about being skeptical, which means, doesn't necessarily mean being cynical or being critical, but it means critical in a sense of uh, critical thinking and, and thinking about things through logically, rationally, and scientifically rather than just accepting what's put in front of you. And that's what we talked, that's what we, that's going to be the topic of this, this week's podcast. I just want to pull you up there, Gihan. Where did Dr. Brian Dunning get his PhD from? Yeah, good question. Good question. Um, so, so we're going to call this podcast, It Must Be True, I Saw It on the Internet. Absolutely. And uh, we were going to do this in two, we were going to do two parts of this podcast. It was going to be about, firstly, how do you assess authority, particularly on the internet, given that there's so much information out there now. And the second part is, how do you then create authority? So how do you be an authority on the internet and create credibility and authority, given that there's so much junk out there? And we're going to do that all in one podcast, but we found there's so much material that we're going to split it over two. Good idea. So in this first segment, we'll talk about how to assess authority on the internet. I know, I know you've had a couple of thoughts around this, Chris, so do you want to just lead off? Sure, I will. Um, as, as you've just mentioned, there is just so much information out there available on the internet, and we're increasingly using the internet as a source of information rather than listening to uh, news on radio or television or uh, reading the newspaper. People are getting news and getting other information from um, online sources. 
and there are you know, a huge number of sources that uh, you can get that information from. Um, so yeah, how do we go about assessing the authority and the credibility and accuracy of that information uh, and make sure it's not uh, a Thunderwood College um, graduate that's uh, sending the information to us or providing that information? That's, that's my alma mater. <laughs> that's right. Um, but you're right, exactly. Yes, so um, yeah, so I was going to just talk about um, the concept of safety in numbers. Um, I know you were going to talk about um, the critical thinking aspect, uh, something that applies regardless of whether information is uh, provided via um, online sources or not. But um, yeah, this whole safety in numbers um, concept that, uh, that has come about as a result of things like Web 2.0 websites like Wikipedia. So Wikipedia is uh, a source of very uh, well of of uh, a large amount of information, and the accuracy accuracy of it is quite good. When it was compared against uh, Britann Encyclopedia Britannica, it was found to be um, at least as accurate as Encyclopedia Britannica. Now that's not to say that it was um, uh, completely accurate. There is certainly an amount of um, misinformation. Some of it uh, provided maliciously, or some of it just through through error or inaccuracy. But certainly, it's a, it's a good source of information. Um, it's relatively credible because there is such a large community of dedicated editors who are working to provide the Wikipedia resource, and it's that 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 huge global effort that um, emergent from from that effort is uh, a, a fairly accurate information source. Yes, and I remember when we talked about Wikipedia earlier. We I think that that research that you're that you're citing was from something published in Nature, wasn't it, in Nature magazine? Right, yeah. That said that Wikipedia was about as accurate as Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, and they pointed out two other things. One is that even though there were inaccuracies in Wikipedia, those inaccuracies were fixed almost, well, overnight, literally overnight, because they were usually fixed uh, very quickly. And I think part of the other research, I'm not sure whether it came through from Nature or from somewhere else, said that if the people who made deliberate deliberate changes that were inaccurate to Wikipedia, because of that safety numbers issue that you're talking about, they got corrected within some stunningly small amount of time, like less than an hour. Yes, that's right, exactly, Gihana. And I happened to witness one of those. I think it was the Thomas Friedman um, page on Wikipedia that I was reading. And halfway down the page, in all caps, was uh, some kind of spam message saying, read this book or visit this website, it will change your life. Um, so it was clearly someone had put a bit of graffiti in there, a bit of spam in there. Um, I refreshed the page and it was gone. It was it was um, gone in the blink of an eye, so to speak. So, right. And if, if it hadn't have been gone, then I could have uh, simply gone and edited that page and removed that content. So um, someone else was obviously uh, on the ball, even quicker than me, and as you say, corrected almost in the blink of an eye. So... Yeah, that's right. There are so many eyeballs on Wikipedia, so many people dedicated to providing a, an authoritative and credible source that uh, malicious attempts to uh, deface it or people who want to provide a particular kind of spin, um, it's picked up fairly quickly, especially on, on pages that are popular. You know, you might be able to create a fairly obscure page on Wikipedia and um, put some rubbish in there. That might last a while, but because it's obscure, it's it's not going to be disinformation so, because people aren't going to refer to it. And if people do refer to it, they'll, 
eventually it will, it will get uh, corrected. Well, see, you raise a good point there. Is, is there a way of telling on a particular Wikipedia page how many people have been looking at it? You know, maybe the way to look at it is how many people have been editing it, and that gives you some idea of how popular it is. That's right, Gihan, you can. There's, um, there's uh, an extra tab, a couple of extra tabs on the Wikipedia pages that give you the edit history of the page. Um, so you can see how much editing has gone into producing that page. It's, it's history, it's edit history. And there's also a discussion tab where you can talk about, the editors can talk about um, any contentious content on that page. So they provide you with some additional insight into how the content that makes up that Wikipedia page came about, its edit history. And if there's any contention, um, then it's being discussed on the discussion page. And also, a lot of pages are flagged um, on, the, on the very front page itself as being perhaps um, not having a, a neutral point of view, which is one of the uh, editing criteria that they have on Wikipedia. So they might be flagged as being perhaps considered to be biased. Mm -hmm. So there are various warnings that you can get um, either on the page itself or in its edit history or on the discussion pages that can give you a clue as to whether, as to the credibility and authority of that particular piece of information. So you make a good point with this whole safety numbers thing that you can look at a Wikipedia page and just looking at the page itself doesn't give you much information about whether it's accurate or not unless you can detect obvious biases in it. Mm. But there are other cues that will give you some idea, and it's only a heuristic, it's only a rule of thumb, will give you some idea of whether other people are looking at it and actively looking at it. And if there are a lot, then you can guess that it's fairly accurate. Exactly. It's, so it's, it's that large number, that safety number that, that is brought to bear in that case. I guess it's this thing that we've been banging on about for, what, six months now, Chris, maybe a bit yep. longer. This whole architecture of participation, the, whole, the way the web has changed with Web 2.0 is that the, the great thing is that everyone can participate. The downside is that everyone can participate. Exactly. And so now, more than ever, there's a, there's a lot more information by a lot more publishers, and the publisher might be somebody in their um, spare room just typing away on their computer. That's us. Uh, that's exactly, and I remember many, many years ago, Chris, probably 20 years ago, there was a quote that I think we shared around uh, the computer science department at the university that we did go to, not Thunderwood College, um, that said, you have to be 18 to own a gun, but they'll give a modem to just about anybody. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that, even at that time when the internet was very young, uh, there was that architecture of participation. In fact, it's probably turned around full circle now that at that time there wasn't the web but there were discussion forums there's email and people were participating and uh, even from 20 years ago we were still assessing the authority and the credibility of people who were online and i think maybe now because it's become mainstream there's a temptation for people who perhaps haven't had that history with the internet to just trust it just the same as they would trust tv or radio or the newspapers exactly that's right but as we say, with Web 2.0, people are, we, we have websites that encourage and are based upon the idea of participation. And when that, when that comes, to, come in, comes into play, that's when you have um, uh, a more critical audience um, taking, part in, taking part in a particular web property. That's right. I, I, I think back to 1998, which is 10 years ago now, Chris. 
Mm-hmm. And I was running I was running programs for schools. In fact, I wasn't running it for the students. I was running it for teachers and for parents on how to use search engines. And Google wasn't around at the time, but there were other things like Yahoo and AltaVista and things like that. I was really helping the adults come up to speed, catch up with what their kids were learning, uh, and helping them find information on the net. Right. And I found this particular quote from Dr. Robert Wilensky of the University of California, and he said, we've all heard that a million monkeys banging on a million typewriters will eventually reproduce the entire works of Shakespeare. Now, thanks to the Internet, we know this is not true. (laughs) Give it time, Gihan. That's right. So way back 10 years ago, when the web was still fairly new, people were still concerned about the the validity, and I guess he was in some, in some ways talking about the quality of the information, mm-hmm. whereas we're talking about how authoritative it is or how credible it is. But even then, people were concerned about what was being published on the net. Um, right. I guess the other thing around that, Chris, is that if you've been following mainstream media all your life and you've been looking at TV and radio and newspapers, you know that there's some bias to that, but you also know that it goes through some sort of editorial process. And uh, if you don't think about it much, you might not think it's biased. If you do think about it, you realize there's some bias, and so you read it with that bias in mind. Um, and but, but knowing that it's gone through some editorial process or with research, like the sort of research you would publish, that you would, Chris, publish, it goes through a peer review process. And there are some checks and balances in place. With the Internet, there aren't. And it may not be obvious that there aren't because you can create a credible-looking website with incredible information on it. That's right, yeah. So so that means that uh, the rules that you just apply to old media still apply uh, in the new media, don't they? So you need to be aware that, um, that, if, uh, it, that if it's any old professional-looking website, that you need to apply some critical thinking and consider uh, searching for corroborating information elsewhere. Yes, and I think that's the other part of the safety in numbers, isn't it? It's not just saying go to websites like, like Wikipedia. You're absolutely right. There are a lot of eyeballs on that. But if you go to some other website, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, bad information. It just means that you should look elsewhere as well. You shouldn't just yes. trust one source, unless it's me and, and you. <laughs> that's right. And often what I'll, I'll do in such cases, Gihan, is I'll use Wikipedia as not as the primary source, but as the backup source. So if I come across, if I'm researching a topic and come across some information on um, an individual website and want to know a bit more about the author, the owners of that website, the organization that are running it, I'll often go to Wikipedia and enter the name of an organization or whomever um, and see if there's any further information that I can that, that's disclosed in Wikipedia that uh, can help me perhaps see whether there's a particular agenda that that website might be pursuing. Yes, okay, so Wikipedia is kind of like a, a central source that you bounce back and forth from. That's right, exactly. Okay, well, um, I, I, I really like your idea, Chris, of this, this whole safety numbers thing, because that's certainly one way that you can assess whether, whether information is valid or authoritative. It doesn't always mean that the numbers are correct. I mean, for a long time, most of the world thought that the world was flat. Exactly, yeah. And I, uh, I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has that changed? Yes. And, uh, okay, we won't get into the Santa Claus and Easter Bunny stories here. 
Um, yeah, so it doesn't necessarily mean that the math is right. That's right. We're, we're, and we're certainly not saying you should always follow the herd, but we're saying we, you should look at you should look at multiple sources for your information. And yeah. um, just before we leave that topic, I just want to talk about the other thing that you mentioned that you passed on to me, Chris, before this podcast about the idea of the general public sending information through to traditional media outlets. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Because I think that's yeah. a that's a little a fascinating spin on what's happening with trust even in mainstream media. Yes, I can't remember the URL, but it's an initiative by CNN where they um, have got a... It's a bit like Wikipedia in, in that anyone can submit news items to a particular website. Can you remember the URL, Giha? No, but we've posted on the show notes okay, on, that pop, good idea. Uh, on the blog after the podcast. That's right. So you can um, upload a video clip, a little um, to-camera piece or some video that you've taken with your... Uh, um, mobile phone or, or whatever and um, it will appear on this particular website that CNN host and it's and they claim it's completely unedited so up it goes and it's then up to the audience to um, to vote on it give it a, a, a rating out of five stars and then you can sort news items according to their currency according to the particular five star rating that they've got and um, you get a, a news stream um, of content provided by the CNN audience. So it's an interesting concept and, and it relies on having a large community of people um, reading that content, giving ratings out of five stars as to um, how, how the, the quality of that, uh, that news is, um, well, the quality rating of those, those news items. And so, sort of that safety in numbers concept, just before we leave that, I was going to say a similar concept we've talked about is um, dig.com, where they also allow anyone to submit um, video clips or, or web pages or images or whatever, and then people can dig them. That is, they, they either give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And then if you go to um, particular category web pages on dig, you can see the, the most... Um, voted for in each of those categories. And so you get right. different feeds different feeds from DIG based on large numbers of people voting for or against um, particular items. Yes, so I get both of those examples, the CNN one, which seems like a little, a, a mini YouTube. They've got their own version of YouTube, really, where, you, where yeah. people can upload clips and they get rated. Um, and the DIG example, they're both cases of where they, they rate uh, quality by popularity, yes, which is not and it shouldn't be the only criterion, but it's one that gives you some idea of how authoritative something is. Yeah, and it's also something that we know can be gamed. There have been instances where people have gotten together as as um, a group and voted something up in Dig, for instance, in order to get it onto like the front page of a particular category in Dig, and. Um, so, yeah, you do have to be wary. I mean, there is this, this safety in numbers concept that I've been pushing, but it's, it's also a system that people can cooperate to, to rig if they, if they want to. Yes, and in fact, one of the ways that people use that in marketing books is that they campaign to be number, the number one on Amazon.com, which, of course, gives them great credibility when they can put that on the cover of their book. It says number one business book on Amazon.com. 
And the way they do that is that they set up a campaign that says, on this date, on the 1st of March 2008, we would like you to buy, I would like you to buy my book. And if you buy my book on that day and you send me, you email me a copy of your receipt, then I'll send you all these bonuses. And generally they, they contact all their mates and all their mates provide a free bonus, which will be an e-book or an audio program or something like that. And that way, they they set it up so that lots and lots of people buy their book on that date, which gives them number one status on Amazon.com for that day, yes. which then gives them that credibility to be able to legally and legitimately advertise that they were number one on Amazon.com. Yeah. So these things can be manipulated. Mm. And the other thing you mentioned before when we were talking before the call, Chris, was PageRank, Google PageRank. Yes, that's right. So when Google gives you um, search results, it ranks them according to an algorithm called PageRank. And loosely speaking, that is the number of um, websites that refer to a particular search uh, refer to a particular search result page. So the more people that refer to your particular page, um, the higher your page rank is going to be. And so if you've got a high page rank, your page will appear higher in the search results provided by Google. So that's kind of like a, an automated way of assessing the authoritativeness of a web page by looking at how many inbound links a page has. That's right, and, and that's really the reason that Google became the number one search engine. Mm. I remember when Google started, there were at least a dozen leading search engines that were competing for the number one spot. There's Yahoo, there's AltaVista, there was Lycos and Hotbot, and a whole bunch of others. And they all worked by by trying to evaluate the content of each page. And Google did something different. What they said was, if a lot of pages are linking to this one, there's a good chance it's a good page because lots of webmasters have made deliberate choice to add links there. And that's kind of how PageRank was born. Yeah. Um, and it was very popular. It, it then... The, the the proof of the pudding was that people did people did go to Google because Google was turning up the best results. So in some ways, it proved that the popularity contest philosophy was mm. working. Yeah, yeah. And again, people uh, can you can pay people money to try and game that system to try and increase your page rank artificially by um, creating vast numbers of web pages that do refer to your particular page that you want boosted in in uh, the page rank listing. That's right. In fact, I've seen there's a there's a brand new internet business a category that's grown, which is simply you resell websites that have a high page rank mm -hmm. and uh, and you resell them to somebody who wants to get a page rank a high page rank themselves. Right. Because part of Google's uh, system, like we've described it very simplistically, but part of it is that Google, like not all links are created equal. Right. So Google gives a higher priority if you've got incoming links to your site from highly ranked sites. Yep. So if, if some other site has a high page rank and then links to you, Google considers that higher than just any old site linking to you. Right. So there's a, there's a, a brand new business where, you, where websites are, are rated and given a, a financial capital value based on their page rank because if you sell them to somebody else, that somebody else can then change their website to just have links to some to their own site. Right, right. So that's a way of, another way of manipulating the system. Yeah, 
So having sort of talked up this whole safety in numbers concept in terms of PageRank and Wikipedia, we've also demonstrated that it doesn't let you off the hook. You can't just simply say, well, it's got a high page rank or it's on Wikipedia or uh, it's got a lot of dig votes. Therefore, you know, it must be authoritative, it must be credible. We know that the system can be gamed, gamed and also there's that fundamental uh, popularity doesn't mean it's correct. Um, so you're not off the hook. I mean, we have some tools at our disposal for giving us some indication of authority and credibility, but we still need to be sceptical. We still need to scrutinise the information that's being presented to us. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's that 80-20 rule, Chris, that if we follow the things that we've talked about today, which is look for safety in numbers, either on the site itself or by looking for other sites that corroborate that evidence, mm -hmm. then you're 80% of the way there. The, the, danger comes, the danger comes where you just look at one source and it's not an authoritative source and there are no checks and balances in place on that source and you don't look at it sceptically, you just trust what you see just because it's there. Or maybe just because it tends to favour the, the viewpoint that you already support yeah. um, because there's certainly research that shows that people tend to, when they see evidence, they tend to notice the evidence that supports them and they tend to even subconsciously reject the evidence that doesn't support their existing viewpoint. Yeah. So I, I, I was going to talk a little bit about how you can assess things skeptically, but let's not do that. Let's talk about that in another, in another podcast, because I think that could be a whole topic in itself. Okay. But I think the whole 80-20 thing of the, like your, your idea of going for safety in numbers is an excellent way to get started. Great. And of course, um, people listening to this podcast and taking our advice do need to do some legwork and not just take it from us, but get some corroborating support. That's right, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, that's one of the things about presenting sceptical evidence, which is what we are doing, which is asking people to think for themselves, hmm. is that it's almost never a dangerous thing to think for yourself. Um, to actually, as long as you're okay with thinking. <laughs> yes. Yeah like just following the masses or following one particular viewpoint is more likely to get you into trouble than taking a few extra minutes to do some extra research and extra thinking. Absolutely. So any last comments on that, Chris? Any last thoughts? I think you've summed it up already, Gihan, that um, yeah, we've got the, you've got the safety in numbers concept um, at your disposal, and that's a, a great leg up. But um, remember to think critically um, about any information that you read or here, whether it be on the internet or on television or on the news or in the newspaper. That's right. And if I was to offer a last suggestion, it's just getting into the practice of thinking, of doing some critical thinking, just thinking beyond the surface. Mm -hmm. And the way I'd suggest you do that is not go and read all the dialogues of Plato and Socrates, even though that would help you, but that would be a very theoretical way of doing it. Listen to a couple of podcasts that are in the sceptical field, the rational thinking field, and the two that I listen to regularly, which I've referred you to as well, Chris, and I think you enjoy them quite a lot. I do, yeah. Are, are the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and the Skeptoid podcast. And uh, I'll make sure that we have links to them in the, in the show notes on the blog um, when we post this podcast, which, as usual, will be at gihanperera.com. So thanks again, Chris. Thanks for your time. And, uh, A pleasure, Gihan. Oh, sorry. A pleasure, Doctor. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Look forward to speaking to you in a couple of weeks' time. Will do. Okay, bye for now. Bye. 
You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.